Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Rebecca Mackay, author of the Pulitzer Prize runner-up novel The Great Believers, in conversation with Alexander Hemon, a Bosnian-American author best known for the novels Nowhere Man and The Lazarus Project, and as a co-writer of The Matrix Resurrections. In addition to sneak peeks of their next books arriving in 2023, Rebecca and Alexander discuss her new literary initiative Around the World in 84 Books, wherein she will read a single book from 84 different countries. Apropos of that initiative, the two friends will extol the importance of literary translators, view the Bosnian cultural diaspora through a literary lens, and pass the different spellings and meanings of pixelated. Prepare to be surprised. Inspiration starts now. Um, I'm trying to figure out the last time I saw you in person, Sasha. It must have been before the pandemic. I think it was. I think it had we, to be we've probably... come to Chicago a couple of times since 2018, but it was yeah. in the summer and it was only family and not me. Yeah, and, and I've been... Right. And I've been to New York uh, since the pandemic, but it's been in and out. So, yeah, it was probably either in Chicago or in New York uh, back in the time of innocence. That's right. <laughs> well, it was Trump time, so it wasn't that innocent. Well, that's true. No, no, no. Good point. <laughs> back in the time of partial innocence. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe some things are better now. Um, but we miss you in Chicago. You, you were here for so long and then you lifted off in a puff of smoke and uh and went out east i miss you all too chicago's great and when we go back i mean it's only for a few days and it's it's so intense and it's lovely and yeah well because yeah because the entire places. city the entire city wants to have drinks with you so that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah, i can accommodate many people but not the entire city <laughs> N- next time you're at the top of the list okay better be right. <laughs> um but uh, yes, I'm, I'm really, I'm happy to be like, you know, but, okay. So the reason that um, they invited me to do this podcast now, instead of when my new book comes out, which is next year, is that I'm starting this project of reading books in translation. And then they asked who would be a good conversation partner. And I thought of you for several obvious reasons, in addition to the fact that I don't, I haven't, you know, seen you in person forever. So, um, I'm, I'm kind of excited to talk about that as well as to catch up. Cause I know you have a new book coming out too. So I have a lot of things that I want to catch up on, but, um, I wonder if we should start with that because I told you that you have to give me a reading assignment. So, um, <laughs> I will, it's already, okay. but okay. Okay. But- so I think I should probably explain this thing, which I think I kind of explained to you what I'm doing. So, Um, one thing is my father died in January of 2020 and he died in Budapest. So we were supposed to get over and do this memorial and it never happened. And then we were going to do a memorial here and it never happened. And, um, so I was thinking about the fact that he was, he was a poet, but he was also a literary translator, um, and a linguist. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about the fact that I have been on a steady diet 
of like nothing but contemporary American fiction for several years, partly because I've been judging prizes, partly like you're going to be in conversation with someone or you're reviewing or you're blurbing their book or it's your friend and you want to read the book and support them. Um, and so the, the project is, um, I originally said around the world in 80 books, but then I realized someone like some smart Harvard professor wrote a book called that. Um, so I'm deci I decided because my dad lived to 84. So I'm going to do around the world in 84 books. I'm starting in Hungary and I'm ending in Hungary. Um, but I'm going to try to do like, and I'm just basically this just going to be social media. I'm not like doing a a blog. I'm not doing a podcast. I'm just going to like have conversations about this on Twitter and Instagram. Um, but I'm going to start reading my way around the world and, um, kind of like amazing race style. Have you ever seen the amazing race? You, I know the only TV you watch is soccer, so probably not. Um, but, um, so I'm starting in Hungary and then I'm going to do Croatia and then Bosnia is next. Cause just, it makes sense geographically. Um, so at some point, I, I've told you that you you need to choose my Bosnian book. Um, I have. You have. Okay. So, do you, okay. What is my reading assignment? What am I doing? Well, you're reading My Heart by Semezde Mehmedinovic. Ooh, okay. Wait, hold on. I'm writing it down. Okay, so it's called out, My Heart. Um, yeah, that's not the original me. title. But yeah. the, the original title is... Mehmed is the name that... Um, is used in the book to address the author, um, Sirvena Bandana, which is the, a red um, bandana and a snowflake. And it, the, the original title um, refers to the fact that the book has three parts. Ooh. The first part is about the narrator and the author. It, here it's published as a novel, but it's nonfiction. Oh, interesting. Um, Whoa. The first part... Semesden is referred to as Mehmet by a person in an ER room as he's trying to survive a heart attack. So they call him Mehmet. A red bandana belongs to his son, with whom he travels to California by train as he's going to college in California. And a flake, oh, a snowflake, sorry, refers to um, his wife having a stroke and then remembers oh. a snowflake at some point. So it, it looks like there's a lot of illness, but it's really all about love and the modalities like and details of love and the, the family, the three members of the family. Semesden, his son Harun, and his wife Sanya. And he's, a, he's an old friend of mine and one of my favorite writers in any given language and the best writer for my money in living right in Bosnia. Wow. It's um, relatively speaking, most famous book is Sarajevo Blues. He was in Sarajevo throughout the siege and kept writing these fragments, including poems. He's originally a poet. I mean, he writes poetry a lot. Cool. Um, and then publishing that book of fragments, collected, as they were, during the siege, as Sarajevo Blues in the United States, was published by City Lights oh, cool. and in, in the late 90s. And it is wonderful. He has... It's an excellent translation, because I read all this in, in the original as, as parts. Um, I mean... They were published individually before they were published together. In oh, English, okay. Fre okay. Freeman published a piece in Freeman. Um, but the, the translation is excellent because he has this contemplative 
patient style that allows for paying attention to details and being in the moment and not rushing mm. through the experience. And it is, um, it is an amazing, but I, it is some words. I mean, it, it is pointing in the direction of people like Rachel Cusk. Okay. And what's yeah. his name? Card Ove Klausgard. Yeah. Yeah. Neither, Jeff which Dyer. I can stand, that kind of... on, honestly, Jeff Dyer, <laughs> I can read, but Klausgard. Yeah. <laughs> I've never tried to read but, Cascard, actually. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's a four thousand page selfie, but that's a different story. <laughs> My story. Well, <laughs> uh, and it's not you know compelling to me. But here, it's a short book, but it's also it's so loaded with experience and love, and the fact that it's really a matter of life and death. He's almost dying. His wife has a stroke, and there's this presence uh, in terms of narration at the moment where it could go either way. I mean, yeah. obviously, he lives through it in that he, he wrote it, but there's this tension of and, and a kind of love of life inherent in paying attention to the world Yeah, that I find um, beautiful and disarming and compelling. And so I read it in original Bosnian, but I read it in, in English. I wrote an introduction, and, you know, tooting my own horn to this book. Yeah. And I think if people, like, if they Google my heart Bosnian novel... Yeah, they'd probably yes. find it. Okay, yes. it's not it's not a crowded market. <laughs> well, what, okay. So now this is the other thing is like as I read my way around the world, I'm only doing one book from each country, I think. Um, but I'm gonna I want to try to figure out like you know past present what is going on with the literature of that country a little bit. Like what what is the state of publishing in Bosnia? Is well, I mean. I, what I forgot to mention is that this book takes place in the United States because Samantha uh, was uh, lived in the United States for 25, 26 years, went back in 2019. Yeah. Uh, um, because Bosnian ref, uh, literature is marked by the experience of displacement. Yes. I mean, I write in English. Yes. He writes in Bosnian, and that the, most of Bosnian writers are displaced in some way. There are obviously people who write in Bosnia and live in Bosnia. Uh, or you know, in the region, but are from Bosnia. But yeah. uh, it's it's a fun. It's Bosnians are not unlike the Lebanese. It's a, yeah. it's a diasporic nation, and so much of its cu culture and economy and politics is unimaginable without the fact of diasporic experience and existence. Yeah. And so, it, among other things, this book is about that sort of being elsewhere. Oh, cool. Uh, because when he has a heart attack, and and. Uh, the ER technician calls him Mehmet. It is because they cannot pronounce his name. Ah. And so that, that is inscribed in the experience of Bosnia. So the sort of the world in which we live, particularly people from the countries like the one I come from. Yeah. No one just stays at home. No, 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 no. It's not territorially yeah. defined, the country, as it were. Yeah. Alone, it's culture. It always right. is, you know goes past its own borders. You know, I actually don't think I know, like your work, do you translate your own work back into Bosnian? Do you have, does it no. get, it gets translated into Bosnian? It does, gets, yes. But, but well, not by I you. I don't think it's a good idea for um, writers to translate their own work. Actually, I don't think it's a good idea that I translate my work because I know what I said and what I think. And so I cannot pay attention and, and occupy the position of someone who's reading it for the first time. Ah, yeah. I, long time ago, my, I translated some stories from my first book and only to show it to friends, and then it got published. 
and then fortunately vanished uh, that edition. Um, but the translation was terrible. Oh, God. Because I knew what I meant and I would misuse idioms and sort of, <laughs> I, I know, there were parts of sentences missing as it were and, and because the syntax is different in Bosnia. Yeah. And so on. And so what I've arrived at is that I have a, there's a great translator in Sarajevo whom I work with, who translates my books, and then I edit that translation. And because she's so good, I get to fine-tune it to the point of total obsessiveness. <laughs> so that, so that uh, one of the books, yeah, I had a double book, My Parents and, you know, um, This Doesn't Belong to You, which was mm-hmm. published in one, one volume in the United States. But in Bosnia, it was published as two books. So oh, wow. This Does Not Belong to You is only 35,000 words or so. And I had 5,000 interventions <laughs> in, in that. Uh, so, which is, you know, every seventh word, as it were, had to be addressed. Yeah. And so, and my, I had to convince my uh, translator that it's, it's not that because the translation was bad, but on the contrary, because it was so good that I could fine-tune it in the, in the most precise way that no one will ever notice. <laughs> it's just, it was a, you know, playing field for my obsessiveness. Yeah, that's amazing. I. I have had, and you know, I, my experience, and I'm sure that your experience with most translations of your work has been much more, you know, maybe the translator gets in touch with a question or two, but mostly it just sort of, um, happens and, you know, um, but I've had it, it, this keeps happening that, um, tiny things, the book will be out in English and there are tiny things that I never caught that no editor, no copy editor of mine ever caught but a translator catches because they're the only ones going so slowly word by word that they, yeah. you know, the, my favorite things. And sometimes it's like, Oh, you already said she sat down and then she sat down again and you go, Oh my God, I can't believe I missed that. My favorite thing that a translator ever caught was that in, um, I think in my last book in the great believers, um, someone is Skyping with someone. Um, And I said that this person's image was pixelated and I spelled it P-I-X-I-L-A-T-E-D. And apparently there are two different words pixelated. Do you know this? No. (laughs) Okay. So the one I wanted apparently was P-I-X-E-L-A-T-E-D, like like made of pixels. P-I-X-I-L-A-T-E-D means enchanted by pixies and or (laughs) drunk. (laughs) not the band but the fairy like creatures no (laughs) so apparently like i guess the the one like it was 1920s slang for being really drunk like oh i'm sorry about last night i was a little pixelated i'm going to use it i know me too when i get drunk not responsible don't drive drive while pixelated (laughs) seriously yeah. But like, you know, for me, it never came up in my spell check. Um, cause it is a word and no editor of mine ever caught it. And it, I've never, no one I've told that story to has ever gone. Oh yeah, I know that no one, <laughs> but it was some, I don't know, my, my Dutch translator or someone was like, I think you mean this. Can you clarify? <laughs> oh yeah. That is fantastic. 
I think well, translators are, are the absolute readers, the perfect readers, because they, they read the same book twice. Yeah. And with mo most attentively, they are ideal readers. In some ways, I yeah. write, we write for tra the translators because they're the only ones who will understand it as intended as it were. Or, and wow. then beyond that, beyond that, um, my uh, Italian translator, who's a very good friend, she does not read the book before she starts translating. Whoa. And I, I find this methodology fascinating. So she starts from the first sentence and then she reads and translates at the same time. And that wow. is so that I cannot imagine, or I, I'm trying to imagine how intense of a reading experience that is. You spend yeah. a day reading four sentences God. in two languages. And that is just, I mean, it's, it's a joy. It's Joyce's dream come true. Right, right reading one book and so that or years reading one book effectively God. and that's i find it fa fantastically oh my god and then like if it's if it's anything you know with any kind of suspense in the plot you'd like be living in that for so long yeah, yeah, yeah. wow no i just it's an absolute total immersion that's that's what it is yeah in a book. it's almost it's the way that i think some of my writing students think they're going to be read and I wish it were true but you know the the sort of you know the, the planting these tiny little clues are being you know very cryptic and um it, it, I guess you know it's the kind of thing that would make sense if someone spent an hour puzzling out this page of their manuscript but you know maybe someday when they get translated but to get to that point you gotta have something that people can understand and actually read you know um but it's uh it is true but i think in the in the, in the details and such small um events as it were the uh, the totality of the writer's experience or the experience of writing is somehow inscribed yeah and so it's not that they that you write for readers who will notice every little thing but it is if it, 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 it the reader would have a sense, does have a sense of a fully imagined world. Yeah. They might not puzzle over detail and why, you know, I, a friend of mine wrote a, a book and then mentioned a sleeping woman, how there's a thread of, um, there's a thread under her nose and whenever she breathes, you know, it goes up a little, flutters a little. And it's such it. a lovely detail because it's so arbitrary. And then, you know, you can puzzle over it, what it means, what it doesn't mean, but you will start expecting, um, that level of attention, and then you find yourself immersed in a world that is fully imagined or fully experienced, which is really the same thing. Yeah. And so it's not many details will be missed, but what will not be missed is this disposition. I agree. The, the issue in which is, of everything course, is fully imagined. Yeah. The issue, of course, with you know, I think people early in their writing, it's 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 not so much a detail that someone will miss, but like, yeah, literally, I can't follow what you're saying, you know, yeah, right. um, which is not not as helpful. Um, it is the end of the process, as it were, right? At first, you have to lay down the tracks and yes. know who's doing what and where and why and when. And yeah. so absolutely, I agree with you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Here are two brief messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. 
Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers, so you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type, and once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Buxton Books is proud to be a season sponsor of the Always Authors Podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street. And we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at buxtonbooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books. I'm, so, you know, one of the things I'm so excited about you know, there, there are very few languages that I can read, I, that I could read side by side, um, where I could, you know, I would say, you know, French, I could read the original and read a translation, Spanish, kind of, Hungarian, not really, Latin, I've forgotten all my Latin, and that's about all I've got. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of, I think part, part of what I'm interested in, like, I'm going to read these translations, and then I want to, you know, I want to know from people who speak that language, people who know, like, you know, the, the backstory on like, is this a really loose interpretation? Is this a really tight, careful translation? Is this sort of a, a translator who really puts their own spin on things? Cause that's a part of reading that if we don't read books in translation, it's just not a conversation we ever have. Um, that's right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm I mean, you know, that famously Robert Frost said, poetry is what is lost in translation. And then yeah. I guess as a retort to that, Joseph Brodsky, the Russian poet, he said poetry is what is gained in translation. And both <laughs> are right. Yeah. I think both are right. And so uh, there, there will never be a perfect translation. If, if a book was perfectly translated, so everything is matches the original one-to-one, then the both versions would be in the same language. Yes. It, you know, there would be no difference in languages. As such. Yeah. And it's, it's not just the vocabulary or even grammar. It is the referential field of languages, the culture, the daily experience, the, totally. the illusions. When, when my you know, Bosnian translator, she's a little too respectful of, of my stuff, so she doesn't cut until I get to it. So she could, you know, I mentioned a, a town in Bosnia, but to the American audience, I have to say a town in Bosnia, right? Because, <laughs> and the Bosnians but, do not need that extra information. <laughs> oh, absolutely, right? Not only they do not need that, but they have this sort of what kind of cultural references. If there was a battle or there was something, you know, there's a stereotype of people from the town is they really, really funny or really, really stingy. That, that yeah. is all inscribed in that, in the name of town, right? You don't have to footnote that for Bosnians in any way. Right. And so, so it, I think this is the, the, the hard part of translating. What amount of information from the original do you have to um, retain and how much do you have to add to make yeah. it clear? 
Yeah, because there, there's, you know, I talk, to, I talk a lot to friends and students and you know, about cultural glossing. You know, in English, if someone's trying to write about their family culture, about another place, presumably their own culture, to what extent do you aim that at a Western ear? And to what extent do you explain uh, versus to what extent do you just kind of hint <laughs> about what it is? Yeah. To what extent do you just, you know, drop those references, not explain them at all, and know that it might, you're making a choice that might kick some readers out of the text because they don't have the context then to keep following. Um, and they're all, I mean, they're all choices we make constantly, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you, no book has all readers, right? Not even, you know, the, the monotheistic absolute books that presumably have to be read by all of those people right. who believe in that stuff. And so no one has, you know, no book was read by everyone, even within a specific cultural context. Yeah. Right? And so there will always be lost readers. So, but I don't worry about those who are not there. I worry about those who are there. Mm-hmm. It's also that I think reading is, is a, it's a learning operation. That is, you can learn the rules of the world in which that appears, that is constructed and a piece of narrative. Right? Yeah. And so that might require some patience. I, and to my students, I always make sure to tell them, you do not have to catch the attention of the reader in the first paragraph. I think mm-hmm. that's nonsense. And maybe yeah. you know, when stories were published in newspapers and magazines, right? right? And when you had to have a lead, even in fiction, yes. then maybe may, that may have applied to some extent, right? Because you, yeah. the lead was a common operation, right? Because they're going to flip and move on to the celebrity story if there's no um, catch or a hook in, 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 totally. the first, in the first chapter. Yeah, but it's, it's, I have a friend who calls, you know, I think that, that kind of desperate, catchy opening, I have a friend who calls those the night my dead sister had sex with the aliens opening. Just like, you know, someone just throwing something at us, like, please read. I'm going to give you all the weird stuff. I promise. Um, It's just as compelling. All I need is to be oriented. I need to, you know, I need to feel that I'm somewhere, uh, either physically or in someone's mind. Absolutely. But I also think, and it's another thing I I like to tell my students, you know, the, the, the beginning of reading is a, is a beginning of a negotiation, right? Because the reader will yeah. think, oh, should I read this? I don't know. There's no, you know, dead sisters fucking with aliens. Should I read this? <laughs> right. But I think even with the so-called difficult books, I like difficult books. And I, I don't use that word difficult, but there, there's a certain category of books that teach you how to read them. Oh, and yeah. it's not just world building, which comes from, you know, uh, video games, but rather the, the style, the prose, the sort of... Yeah. The, the expected level of attention and investment. And so what I found out is that the books I like most are the so-called difficult books. That is the books that taught me how to read them, yeah. and which allows me to have this feeling that I have special knowledge. But I don't mean as an expert or as a, as a geek, but rather there was an intense experience while reading those books. And then I cherished that experience. It, it felt transformative. Yeah. Page turners to- don't work that way. Yeah, Sorry, my favorite example of that is is Nabokov's Pale Fire, where you're looking at something and it's, you know, how you approach it. It's a poem and then it's footnotes written ostensibly by two different people. But um, you have to not only learn what it is, 
then make decisions about how you're going to enter that text, what you're going to read first, what you're not going to read. what you, And um, it's, you, you feel like you, yeah, you've, you've made this kind of contractual relationship with that book about how you're going to read it. That is fundamentally different than your contractual relationship with any other book. Um, and I think that's, that's the difference between entertainment and art. So yeah. Obviously there's overlapping and it's not mutually exclusive, but there's something about, the kind of loyal reader who goes to a so-called difficult book mm-hmm. and has a feeling, well, you know, I, I earned my sense of intimacy with this text. Yeah. And they, they stay loyal to the text, never mind the writer. It's not a matter of sales or anything like that. But yeah. this, this is the kind, I mean, you know, the, the, the far end of the continuum is the translator who yeah. goes through every single difficult thing to get it right. Yeah. I think that's part of why I want to do this project is... You know, I, you know, so many books, I'm reading books from my own culture, from my own time, and there's, there can be a sameness to some of them, not all, because I think the, you know, we have a breadth to the American literary landscape now that we've, you know, that's unsurpassed in, in our history. But um, I think I'm, I'm craving that difficulty of how do I get into a text that maybe has some elements that are really unfamiliar to me, either of style or of context or just, you know, this was something from Britain in 1742. Um, I think I, I want something a little, um, I want the, like, you know, the, the food that you try, like something that someone's just invented and you're like, what the hell is this? But then the second bite is really good. You know, um, that just, you know, because when I do read in translation, there are times when I'll pick up, you know, say a French novel and go, well, this is like, this is, this is breaking, not rules. Cause I don't believe in rules, but it's, it's not doing the things that I expect a novel to do. And, um, that's just French. So who knows, you know, what'll happen when I pick up, um, you know, right. something from Madagascar from, from 1920. And I'm, I'm excited to see what, the, what that is, what that does. I, I think, I mean, it could also be, this is the thing, that when we read in translation and we do not know the original language, the language appears as flat as the word, right? Yeah. So in Bosnian, Bosnian, as many languages from variously colonized peoples, it has layers, colonizing layers, right? Uh, yeah. the, the, I guess the foundation, the Slavic words that the Slavs brought in in the 11th century or whatever, and then whoever went through those territories uh, as a conqueror or as a, you know, attacker or, or occupier or just a visitor left a layer of words yes and so for instance and there was a time you know when hungary and croatia and bosnia were part of the same empire right. so there's because of that there are hungarian words in bosnia we're cousins right? Palac- <laughs> but that well to some extent we are central europeans yes well yeah yeah so I, but if you do not know the language you cannot make a recognize the difference between a Hungarian word in Bosnian, a German word in Bosnian, a, a Turkish word in Bosnian, yeah. or an Arabic word in Bosnian, right? It just appears as flat. Yeah. And so in that sense, um, in the original language, the, the novel or the story could be breaking the rules, as it were, the local rules, but yeah. we can't quite see that, ah, right? Yeah. We think we might ascribe the breaking of rules to I don't know, the Frenchness of French novels, but it could be actually an exception. To yeah. the Frenchness of French one. Yeah, yeah. It's actually English. I mean, we, of course, English then became the colonizing language. But 
English itself has, you know, that similar history of just this island invaded by the Angles and the Saxons and the Vikings and the, you know, these, um, these, you know, early layers of, of, and, and, you know, things coming in from Latinate French and things coming in um, to form this sort of palimpsest language versus Hungarian, which, I mean, most people aren't sitting there comparing it to Hungarian, but to me, hung, I mean, hung, Hungarian is this, you know, bizarrely sui generis language. Um, you get a few words that have come in in the past century or two, like sandwich and opera, you know, but for the most part, it's, you know, you don't get those influences of the neighboring um, but there, countries. But there's surely some German Austin Not as words. much as you'd think. Not really. Mm. You know, it would, if there, when there are, it's sort of a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a specific word that means a specific thing. Like, right. you know, taxi, I don't know where, ta I don't know where the word taxi originated. Right. But, um, it's much more, it's a very weird, it's an agglomerative language where they, they put together, you know, all these different pieces. So, um, it's like very few words, but they use them to mean everything. So like the word for marriage is house thing basically like houseness. <laughs> so they just, you know, any new concept that they need, they just, they just kind of Lego it together. Um, but it, you know, I, it's certainly not the most isolated language in the world, but weirdly isolated for where it is <laughs> in the middle of everything. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't unfortunately speak Hungarian or could say anything in Hungarian. It is but, by uh, many accounts, the world's most difficult language is absolutely not worth learning unless you were going to move there but it's very very pretty it's really beautiful yeah, language. Is, uh, yeah. yeah so okay wait so i'm going to change the subject kind of completely i think because so i know that you have a new book coming out and i want to know about it and i um i think that our mutual agent handed me an advanced copy of it but then i think it got lost in some stack so it's somewhere it's somewhere in this mess of an office um and uh, I have to finish judging a book prize and doing, and then I'm, it's like uh, in my hot little hand. But so, so when is it coming out and what is it? It's coming out in the United States at the end of January, January 24th. Nice. It is called um, The World and All That It Holds. And it pertains to our conversation to some extent because the main character is Sarajevan um, Seferad. There's... Uh, Jews in Sarajevo who came to the Ottoman Empire um, after the expulsion in 1492, and they had, there was Sepharadim, the Sepharadim, but there were also those who came from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they would have been Ashkenazi and sort of industrial. Yeah. And so the, the Sepharad, the Sepharadim, the Sephards in Sarajevo, they were tended to be poor and, uh, and spoke Ladino. Um, as opposed to the Ashkenazi, the yeah. Austro-Hungarian Jews, relatively integrated, speaking German and being educated in you know the Metropolitan Empire, and so. On. But in any case, um, the point of that introduction is that Raphael, my character, his his native language is Ladino or Spaniel, as they call it in Sarajevo, right? Oh, Which wow. is uh, Castilian Spanish spoken, 15th century Castilian Spanish. Wait, Castilian Spanish spoken right. in Sarajevo? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, all, all, all over, you know, in the Middle East, that was the, wow, the language okay, of the, okay. Sephard, the Sephardic diaspora. That, okay, that makes and sense, so, that makes sense. Got it, yeah, yeah, okay. And so, and, you know, the Sarajevan Jews were wiped out in the Holocaust, yeah. pretty much. Um, yeah. There was a substantial community 
for their long history and uh, and and stories and songs and culture and everything. The point being is that my character is inherently bi multilingual, and not, uh, they also studied in Vienna, so he speaks German mm. and Spanish, Ladino, and and Bosnian, and then picks up some languages along the way. Mm. And so I wanted to and. And I'm doing it all in English, so but the, I wanted to convey the idea of the layered language that a person that uh, he's obviously multilingual, but there's I like the idea that it is impossible to be monolingual in certain parts of the world, mm -hmm. and not only because there are all these empires and cultures passing through the same small space, but because the language is layered, yeah. the language, collective language that everyone shares. So. Spanish and German and I don't know um, the Turkish words are all deployed by him and by in, it would be would have been employed in, in Bosnia at the time. But also that within a single language there are all these layers, colonial layers or yeah. you know, historical historical layers. And so, cool. any case, this is just a, the um, how would I put it? The introduction to the character, but he. The book starts in 1914. He witnesses the assassination of the Austro-Hungarian Archduke in yes. um, and uh, which started World War One. And then he has to go and fight in the war and goes to uh, what is now Western Ukraine, Galicia, which is part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Eastern yeah. Front, where where the Russians destroy the army, the Austro-Hungarian army, pretty much in uh, 1916. And where he meets the love of his life, another man, a Muslim, Osman. And then they're together in, a, in Tashkent, where prisoners of war uh, and were kept in Russian camps. Oh my God. And then there's a revolution, and, and then they keep going east through what is now Xi'an, wow. uh, Western China, and they end up in Shanghai. Oh my God. Raphael ends up in Shanghai. <gasps> so it's, it's a, yeah, it's an epic. Eastbound wow. novel with many languages and also many bad things. That's happen. so cool. I'm trying to think too if you've, I'm trying to remember if you've ever written anything quite that historical before in terms of really like not your lived history, but like. Uh, not, no, no, not only in parts. Um, yeah. I mean, not so big and not exclusively that. There are yeah. stories where you know, some historical knowledge is deployed, but right, right. the narrator is in the present. Or, yeah. or at least part of the book is the relative present. That is so exciting. Oh, my God. And my book is coming out only, I think, four weeks after yours. So oh. what I'm well, hoping is... Well, tell me is... about your book. Oh, okay. Well, first, first I'll say, I'm always so excited to find out who has a book coming out near mine because then it's like, oh, that's who I might get to see at a book festival and, like, you know, that some, like, rooftop party for the authors at some rich person's yes. house. <laughs> um, we might is... have to start planning those parties now. No, I know, right? Mine is um, mine's going to sound very silly in contrast to yours, although it, it is a more serious book than it sounds. But it is a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, but Lesbian it's, dance theory murder mystery. Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone's listening to this later? That was yesterday's Twitter headline. Like, <laughs> um, but um, the. Uh, yeah, it's 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 and it's called I Have Some Questions for You. Um That's the name of the book. It's called that's the name of the book. I'm looking forward that's also great, to yeah. every fantastic. interviewer 
who interviews me starting by making a joke about it. And I, <laughs> I embrace that fully. Uh, I have no issues. I knew what I was doing when I named the book. I accept it. Um, but it's, uh, we're, it's hopefully doing a lot of, um, investigating sort of our obsession with true crime and, uh, subverting some of those tropes and examining them and uh sort of a you know my I think you know a lot of what a lot of writers have been working on in the past five six years is channeling a lot of uh feminist rage and this is this is that book um you know that the great believers I, I finished it kind of right after Trump got elected. So there were just, there were a few, I could see, look back and see a few sentences that I put in there kind of (laughs) as that was happening. Um, but mostly the book was done. And so this is the book that for me is the sort of, um, you know, uh, hopefully entertaining, you know, but, but the, uh, the kind of scream into the void. Um, yeah, you can never have enough feminist rage. Well, exactly. In this world. Yeah. Yeah. They're, it's also, it's, it's so useful to be making art when you have that kind of um, frustration, uh, any kind of, you know, it's personal or it's political or it's, um, it's just, it's so helpful to have somewhere to put it all, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, I can't wait to, to read it. That's well, thank you. And likewise. So we're going to, um, I think our plan, our plan has to be to, uh, you know, take over some author party. Um, at some book festival this summer, we'll we'll do a well, toast. I, I'm gonna tell you, I'm learning to DJ. So <laughs> what? <laughs> That's it's amazing true. for real. It is, yeah. Oh my god! Okay, he's showing me an actual. What would you DJ call deck. that? A, it's a DJ deck. A DJ deck. Oh my! It's a starter DJ deck. DDJ 400 Pioneer. Oh my god! This is the best news. Okay, if um. You know, also we, we tend to, the other place we tend to see each other is that our mutual agent, uh, sometimes has a holiday party. And I feel like if she has this party and you do not DJ, I feel like it would be a great loss. It would be. And I told her so, and I already volunteered myself. In fact, demanded that whatever launch party she has that I yes. want to DJ. Tell her, that, a, tell her that I a, demand it too. I will. However, the issue is the neighbors downstairs. <laughs> That somehow we have to either be tranquilized or pay the uh, weekend and you know in a hotel or something. Oh, and they fine. Also, these are these neighbors. They don't they don't like it when the dog walks on the on the on the floor above them. So oh, a DJ okay. above them might be a long shot unless we do something, offer them money, or you know tranquilize them with legal right. drugs. Maybe this will be the thing that gets them to move out, and then. Uh... Yes, and then she can buy the downstairs She'd apartment the downstairs. too, and then we can have it as a club. Yes, that's it. And like that's the, the ideal apartments outcome, for yes. visiting authors <laughs> and right. a, sort of a lounge space. I I think we we have a list of demands now that we're yes. we're going to go forward yeah. with. Well, we're going on a strike. <laughs> <laughs> so now we need to make sure she listens to this and and tell her that our list of demands comes at the end of the podcast. I think we're we're on a good roll here. <laughs> okay, maybe that's where we should wrap things up. Um, and I'll, I will say it is amazing to see you and talk to you. <laughs> it's great to talk to you. I hope we can do this in person. Yes. Between the DJ sessions. Yes, yes, yes. On the rooftop at an author party <laughs> uh, with our agent fulfilling our demands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll put pressure upon her. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. All right.
Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers. <laughs>